We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back Tuesday, August 31st, 2021. Yesterday, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, spoke. Today, President Biden spoke again on Afghanistan. Neither took questions. Today's speech from Joe Biden was rather odd. I thought politically, I think it made its own sense if you were working in the political department of the White House. But it was effectively a scolding speech that might have been given three weeks or three months ago, not right after we fled Afghanistan or left Afghanistan, depending on the nomenclature you prefer. Joe Biden today made the case for why it was important to leave Afghanistan. As I say, exposing those deliberations of his own mind to the world at large and the American public might have had its uses two, three weeks or two, three months ago. Today, that is no longer the story why we left. We all understood that we were war weary. We either needed to get out successfully or to prosecute with meaning and success. The latter option had been off the table for quite some time. So over the course of several promised dates, and there were several from this president, Joe Biden, we decided to leave Afghanistan in the worst possible way. Mistakes of which are legion. Miscommunications of which are legion. Allies of ours and those who tried to work with us because they believed in our mission there, even when some here didn't. Those allies are on hit lists and kill lists. And we still have hundreds of Americans left behind, despite Joe Biden promising they would not be billed. Do you have Joe Biden making that promise to George Stephanopoulos? Do you have that handy? Not quite yet. Let me know when you have Joe Biden with George Stephanopoulos making the promise that he did. Um, no American would be left behind. And in fact, he emphasizes and doubles down when he tells George Stephanopoulos that no American civilian will be left behind. Listen to this with George Stephanopoulos get everyone out that in fact we can get out and everyone should come out and that's the objective that's what we're doing now that's the path we're on and i think we'll get there. so americans should understand that troops might have to be there beyond august 31st no americans should understand that we're going to try to get it done before august 31st but if we don't the troops if, will if stay if we don't we'll determine at the time who's left and and if there are American force, if there's American citizens left, we're going to stay till we get them all out. American citizens left. Notice he was about to say American forces. He corrected himself to make a stronger point. American citizens 
American citizens. We will stay until we get them all out. That may very well be the line for history. You've seen it with other presidents. One sentence that defines the failure of what they were for the four years, or in some cases less, that they were president. With Richard Nixon, it was, I am not a crook. With Joe Biden, it will be that promise to get every American citizen out of Afghanistan. The stories that you hear about those we left behind, they're just too sad to rebroadcast, and they leave one speechless in the sadness. One hopes that some kind of reckoning that America matters and America is great and being great matters and being great means keeping your word first to your citizens, your American people, second to your allies, third to your enemies, third to your enemies. Where do we get to a point like this? Where do we get to a point where we satisfy ourselves by saying never again, or we satisfy ourselves by saying we will not repeat the lessons of history, or we satisfy ourselves by saying as a student of history, or we satisfy ourselves by saying such things as, no, this won't be another Vietnam. Where's the humility in that? And what's the explanation for ignoring all that? What is the explanation we can blame 30-somethings and 40-somethings, maybe even some 50-somethings who may have been too young to live through these things. We can. But that excuse does not apply to Joe Biden. Joe Biden lived through these things from a pretty good perch, the United States Senate, serving indeed as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the United States Senate. What is his excuse for repeating the mistakes of history? One of the things, I just, if I might segue here, one of the things that people talk to me a lot about are first three or four or five motivating passions for engaging in public policy work or talk radio and politics, public policy work. I will tell you, as many of you can say in your own examples or in your own biographies, that there is one thing you have been talking about for more than 20 years that people are beginning to wake up to and you'd wished only that you had more allies 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. I wasn't alone, of course. There were a lot of people doing it and a lot of people with much, much, much more credibility and bigger names. Alan Bloom was doing it. The American Council of Trustees, Trustees and Alumni was doing it. The Claremont Institute was doing it. And it was the question of what was taking place behind the veil of this thing we call public education. What was taking place behind those classroom doors that most of us haven't been in since we were pupils, since we were students? What was taking place there mattered, some of us said. 
And people are now beginning to really wake up to it, especially after a year of exasperation with COVID and a year of being forced to learn what their children were learning during COVID. Finally, people are waking up to it. But it does matter. Biden can be an empty-headed vessel, which he is today. And it is a shame to those journalists that refuse to write about what they see. The shame is on them. One of the things I think that will come off the bark here, and I hope it does, is the embarrassment, hesitation, and reticence to call things for what they are, to when you see something, actually saying something. After years of cancel culture, and after years of being told you can't say that, it finally looks like that bark may be off the tree. Oh, you could still get banned from Twitter. You could get banned from Facebook. But it seems like people are speaking their minds in ways that they felt once upon a time they couldn't because things have gotten so bad they have no other choice. Good. I'm glad for it. There are no consequences that I have read about other than peer pressure, other than peer pressure for standing up at these school board meetings and speaking your mind or running for school board and changing other people's minds. There should be no, con- there should be no consequences for that. And if your employer punishes you for it, it's illegal for engaging in the democratic processes of exercising your free speech and rights to vote. And run for election. But what we're finding in the public schools on these examinations that others are now waking up to is something that's really quite remarkable. Really quite remarkable. A politicalization of our schools that has moved so far to the left that it undermines the entire teaching profession. I will tell you what I mean when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. When we come back, how the schools have entirely undermined the teaching profession. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I was telling you about, right before the break, the contortions the professional elementary and secondary teaching profession has gone through in deference to their unions and in deference to union leadership, which in the end of the day, at the end of the day, turns out to entirely undermine the teaching profession. Interview, you may have read about it, with one Cecily Mayart Cruz. 
may not be a name you know. It wasn't a name I knew. Why would I? She's the head of the teachers' union in Los Angeles, United Federation of Teachers, Los Angeles. And it is the most powerful union in that most powerful of cities. She sat down for an interview with Los Angeles Magazine earlier, or excuse me, over the weekend. The first thing you notice in this interview is kind of interesting. For those of you that know Los Angeles, this sentence in the first paragraph, for the most part, the famously contentious head of L.A.'s most powerful union, United Teachers Los Angeles, remains unapproachable, ensconced inside UTLA's Wilshire Center headquarters, where she controls the levers and dials of the largest, most complicated, and these days most divisive educational labor machine in the state, possibly the nation. Why is the head of the teacher union unapproachable and ensconced? I don't understand that any more than I understand why their headquarters is on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Do you know what the rents on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles are? Let me put it to you this way. If you were a royal prince, Saudi or otherwise, and you were looking to open a headquarters in Los Angeles, you'd want it on Wilshire Boulevard, and that's probably where you'd ask to have it. Not the biggest part of the story. The biggest part of the story is when she says this in response to a question about worries over children losing learning when the schools are closed due to COVID. Quote, there is no such thing as learning loss. Our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup. Close quote. First of all, I'm not sure that adults know the difference between a riot and a protest. If you watch CNN or MSNBC, they do not. Ali Velshi will have the city burning around him while he talks about a mostly peaceful protest he's been covering. Chris Cuomo, who evidently has never read the First Amendment, said, please explain, please show me where it states that protests have to be peaceful. But really, at a far more important level, was this what you imagined public education's job to be, looking at something like what took place in this country last summer and having students distinguish between a riot and a protest? Because I will tell you right now what they know of that distinction, and I'm going to be right 99.9% .9 of the time. Are you ready? Are you ready what they know? I'll tell you what they've learned. The distinction between a riot and a protest is exactly this. A riot was January 6th. A protest 
was everyone who marched for the sake of Black Lives Matter and under the banner of civil rights, whether they used Molotov cocktails, knives, guns, other weapons or not. It is the ends that justify the means, according to the progressives. A line that we learn from traditional communism. The ends justify the means. That's what public schools, according to the head of the teachers union in Los Angeles, the very head, that is more important than learning math or learning English. She says it. How about this one? They learned resilience and they learned survival. Is that what you pay property taxes for, or is that something you would rather be teaching your children? Is it the job of the public school to teach times tables or to teach children to be resilient? I will tell you that if you teach a child times tables, will come some resilience, will come some, pro- some protection. Because you will be able to advance not only in education, but in this society. That was the point of school. The United Federation of Teachers needs to be reminded of that. And this notion that there is no such thing as learning loss, a direct quote from her, sent me to the educational and professional magazines, journals, and think tanks. Because I thought I knew something about education reform. I thought I did. And for years and years and years, the debate has not been about whether there was learning loss. Learning loss during the summer especially was accepted as naturally true. Like breathing air, people didn't think about it. We knew there was learning loss over the summer in America. Every summer. We knew that. You take school students out of a learning environment for three months where they're conditioned to learn and study and do homework, and you are going to lose the exercise of those skills. Every runner knows this. Every competitive athlete knows this. And presumably, we thought every teacher and parent knew this, which is why the debate about education reform when it came to learning loss wasn't about whether there was learning loss in this country. The debate was whether we should do something about it by having all-year school. And getting rid of summer break because of learning loss. That was the debate. Until COVID. When we realized the teachers unions didn't want to teach anyway. Because to them, as long as the culture was teaching the students progressivism, they could sit back and relax. Those who are supportive of their teachers unions. There's no such thing as learning loss. This is a new argument because it embraces a new kind of learning. The kind of learning that teaches the difference between a riot and a protest. And I will tell you right now, I'm still right about that 99% of students. They think the difference is based on the date, not the action. It's poor teaching.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our culture and economy update with John Dombrowski. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com. This is website. J.D., how are you today, sir? Fantastic, Seth. Thank you. You betcha. Thank you. You know, it's a funny thing. There was I was thinking about a Social Security debate. The how old day. are you? Well, uh, I'm in my 50s, low 50s. Should I be thinking about Social Security? I was thinking about it, and um, I saw this story, Social Security Fund on track to go bust Uh-oh. in a little in, in, in a little more than 10 years. Uh, yes. There's, there's, every year there's a study that's done on Social Security and uh, also the Disability Insurance Trust Fund as well. Uh, and, yeah, there was a report that came out. Uh, talking about Social Security, and it talked about the possibility that, based on what they're seeing right now, the numbers, that the fund could be depleted as early as 2033. This is a year earlier than what they estimated in 2020. As I said, each year they do a study on this. Also, there's the Disability Insurance Fund, which uh, is scheduled potentially to be out of its funds by year 2057. So that's about eight years earlier from last year's projections. So this sounds pretty bad, you know, from from what we're seeing. However, this this changes every year, Seth. And there's a couple of things I think that um, you have to look at, which uh, is, number one, this is an interesting uh, statistic that they studied here. Uh, Because of covid And because of the deaths that were reported in 2019 and 2020, believe it or not, the 400,000 more beneficiaries who received these benefits died uh, from one year prior. And that's a 17% increase in deaths of people who are receiving benefits. Mm -hmm. That means, of course, if someone passed away, that benefit ends and that money's not paid out any, any longer. So the factors that really contribute to the potential of this fund running out of money is more people on the fund, people who are retiring maybe earlier than what was expected, right, because of could be COVID, or people are just deciding, um, you know, at this point I'm not going back to work. I'm 62. That's the earliest age that you can collect from Social Security. Uh, and if you're going to begin collecting on Social Security uh, sooner than you expected, well, a lot of people decided to retire earlier than what might have, what they may have thought because of COVID-19 and the restrictions that were put upon them. Uh, that's certainly an issue. And longevity is the other issue, right, Seth? The mm-hmm. longer we live, mm-hmm. the longer we continue to pull money out of the system. Mm-hmm. So those are two of the stress factors, I think, that will be part of this Uh, So that one anomaly of the 17% increase in deaths of recipients, of course, I don't think that's going to be a continuing, uh, you know, situation that's going to occur every year. Interesting point, uh, John. And you're right. We seem to see this every once in a while. But the question becomes for someone like me, Mm -hmm. the uncertainty of Social Security has to be, well, the uncertainty and certainty has to include the services of someone like yourself if someone is going to retire securely or right. really just retire. Let's never mind securely. In general, right. Sure. And one of the interesting things is that we once used to debate things like, well, should people have the option to stay in Social Security or opt out? Would they do better if they opted out? 
And you can find research to go either way on that. But what happened to the debate? You just don't hear about it anymore. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I really don't have an answer for that, why uh, this isn't being discussed right now. I know there's some other issues that this government is facing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is pretty significant. You think about your whole life, you know, you're working and you have no say in what's going to happen uh, whether or not you know your benefits are going to be withdrawn from your account, you have that automatic withholding that comes out of your paycheck, and that's always going to be the case right now with Social Security benefits as well as Medicare, uh, which is being pulled out of your uh, paycheck as well. And of course, we know that Medicare is having some challenges as well with their their financial uh, responsibilities that we're seeing. So, all of these government benefits were meant, you know, maybe in good. At one point when they were initially started, they were meant to be uh, in good faith for those who were going to be in need. Uh, But we're finding the stresses on these particular social programs are really, really difficult right now. And we're hoping that uh, things won't change uh, for the worse, but will change for the better. Thank you, John. I appreciate it, sir. By the way, let me point out, you also have your own radio show here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. on 960 Patriot, The Word on Wealth. Yes, I do. Thank you so much. I have to have you on as a guest on my show. Anytime. Yep. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FinRed Sipic and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Chris Funk at Cool Touch Air Conditioning is letting you in on a little secret. Most AC units are like a light switch with either 100% on or 100% off. And the continual surges needed are huge drags on your power. Now imagine you had a dimmer switch for that air conditioning unit that would allow you to automatically have the right percentage of air conditioning like a dimmer switch on a light. You get the most comfortable living environment and the biggest savings on your utility bills. Cool Touch will eliminate the pain and surprise and with fantastic customer service. They even have a $2,000 rebate on this system. But if it's that system, any other system, a repair or replacement, Cool Touch Air Conditioning is the company for you. They are the company for me and my friends. Give them a call at 623-734-1932. That's 623-734-1932. Or visit them online at cooltouchac.com. Dot com. Grant is in Scottsdale. Hello, Grant. Hey, Seth. How you doing? I'm fine, sir. How are you? Good, good, good. Listen, I have a couple of uh, couple of questions uh, jotted down here. One uh, with regard to uh, uh, I have to assume it's being uh, taught uh, this uh, critical race theory business. Y- yes, sir. Um, I was under the impression, and the question number one, I guess, for you to to let us know, um, I was under the impression that uh, you could not um, use skin color um, or religion or other other items to discriminate against uh, people. And it would occur to me that, and I, I could be wrong, but looking at the uh, information we have on critical race theory, uh, that's exactly what it does. It Blames people based on their um, their skin color. I was that's that's question number one. If you could uh, comment on that, and question number two will have to do with uh, 
something you might direct to uh, your friend uh, John Dombrowski. Uh, he was I uh, was on hold here listening to his comments. Every year we're we're told regarding Medicare uh, that is uh, those of us who are 65. I wish I could remember back that far, but anyway, um, that uh, there's all kinds of fraud and and uh, billions with a B of dollars that are being stolen from uh, Social Security and Medicare, particularly with regarding Medicare. Um, there is, uh, I'm, in fact, I'm holding one right now, a red, white, and blue card that all of us who are 65 and older received uh, uh, probably a couple years ago, replacing the card that we had that had our Social Security number on it. And then this card, uh, obviously, since they didn't want that to be stolen or... It's a, it's a little removed from my ability, but give John a call. It, 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 it's yeah. it's beyond my, my area of knowledge. I'm much better at the first question, critical race That's theory okay. and discrimination. I'll, I'll, uh, but John can help you answer that second question when it comes to uh, cards, Social Security, Medicare. It's 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 just something I wish I knew more about, but you've, you, you found a... Um, a, uh, a uh, one of many <laughs> areas I just don't know that much about, uh, which is that, and I should. But uh, call John. He's our expert, and that's why we bring experts on, um, because they know a lot more about these things than I possibly ever could. But I do know something about critical race theory and education and discrimination. And you're not wrong with your initial assessment, Grant, that something about divisiveness, never mind dividing students by color of skin or ethnicity, runs counter to the notion of civil rights. And indeed, I believe that all we need is a good or brave judge, a good or brave attorney or lawsuit to actually make a claim against what's being taught as violative of what's known as Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 bans discrimination, as you well know, on things like race, um, national origin, ethnicity, gender, you name it. Uh, it covers the, uh, the, the scope. Uh, uh, when it comes to, obviously, in Title VII, it's employment. Title VI is about education, and it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. In fact, I can pull it up real quick. Yes. No person in the United States shall on the ground of race, color, or national origin be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Were I in Congress, I would propose a law that strips the funding of any educational facility funded by the United States where they divide students or discriminate based on race, color, or national origin. I would deny them funds up front, and I would have a list of particulars inclusive of teaching one race superior and other races inferior than others. It should be that simple. It should be that simple. You know, in the 70s and 80s, it was quite popular to engage in what was known 
as multiculturalism, or at least the notion that cultural relativism should reign supreme enough for nobody in the West to presume or assume that our culture and way of life is superior to others. Now, I would fight such a position from the university or um, post-university pulpit. Are you telling me that a culture of free inquiry, a culture of science, a culture of free enterprise is not superior than a culture whose greatest desire is to reimport the 6th century in 2021? Like in Afghanistan, are you really going to tell me I can't say our culture is superior to, to those, to those other cultures? You would be surprised how much pushback you would get from progressives and left in the academy. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. But they turn around now and have no problem, none, zero, in blaming whites for things that have nothing to do with race and blaming America all of it for things some Americans did. It's called collective responsibility, which is called prejudice, which once upon a time was called racism. You're absolutely right, Grant. And with a better government, we would be stripping schools of federal funds that teach that junk thought. Every congressman should be proposing a bill to do just that right now. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. I just got I didn't prepare this at all at all. And that's okay. I'll do it with you in live time. I just got a really interesting email, not from anyone I know, uh, a group email or an email blast from an organization called People Not Profits. And um, most of you who get an email from an organization like that would probably look up the organization to try and find out what you can. It's very hard to do. It looks like a quote-unquote anonymous donor-type organization, perfectly legal. I'm not complaining about that. But here's the headline. You ready? Mitt Romney is sounding the alarm. Sounding the alarm is in all caps. What's the alarm he's sounding? It's quoting a news interview. And it's an interview where Mitt Romney is videoed as saying what happened here in D.C. on January 6th was an insurrection incited by the president of the United States. The message, email message goes on, the attacks on the Capitol were dangerous and Mitt Romney understands that. Please send in this poll. Yes or no. The January 6th riots should be called an insurrection. We're eager to hear your input. And then when you go, you have the opportunity to donate to this organization. Now, what's interesting to me about it is it's an organization wanting to resurrect the notion that January 6th was the worst day of our democracy. Um, 
I don't know, since the Civil War, if you listen to Joe Biden. But then I got another email from them, another email from them, trying to support President Obama's organization, whatever it's called now, having to do with the filibuster. I got both of them within the hour. I'm going to unsubscribe. Don't worry. (laughs) That's not my point. My point is, this is the problem with Mitt Romney. This is the problem with Mitt Romney. On a day when we're looking at the most stark, dramatic, and illustrative distinction between a well-lubricated and functioning democracy or country of any kind versus barbarism, a country that is used to insurrections as routine, Afghanistan, we get Mitt Romney's words thrown back in our faces that January 6th was one such. It wasn't. And when we say we wish when Mitt Romney can get the command and attention of the journalistic community in this country, he would use it to benefit America, if not the conservative cause or Republican Party, which went backwards to support him. If that's too much to ask, at least we ask you don't give aid and comfort to our political opponents that they can use against us, which is what he is doing now.